Tim, great to see you. Yes, Thank thanks. you so much for coming. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Um, incredible to have you here in Lisbon. We just yes. had a great lunch. I hope you enjoyed it. Loved it. <laughs> Salty bits of meat, my favorite. Exactly. <laughs> and it's always good to have, you know, our investors here and particularly you. Uh, we're all big fans. Um, what brought you to Portugal in the first place? Or why did you decide to invest in our fund? And what, why are you interested in Portugal? Well, Portugal's interesting to me on a whole lot of levels. I've wanted to visit Portugal for a very, very long time. My first exposure, I know this isn't the same, but to Portuguese came through travel in South America. And then I've lived throughout Europe, mostly in Berlin. Uh, this was in 2004, and then Ireland and a few other places. And have never had the opportunity to spend time in Portugal. But what I noticed, at least first when I was in Silicon Valley and then after moving to Austin, is that a lot of activity seemed to be and talent seemed to be flowing into and being generated from Portugal. So sort of as like the gateway to Western Europe, there just seemed to be a, a real hub of innovation developing in Portugal. I've been culturally interested for a very long time. And it just made a lot of sense that if I wanted to begin experimenting with kind of placing bets within the ecosystem that Portugal represents, but then even more broadly speaking, uh, Portugal acts as, as, a, as a gateway of sorts, then it just, it, it seemed to be a sensible step for me as, Interesting. Uh, yeah, as exploration more than anything else. You have to convince your girlfriend to. I uh, exactly. It won't take much. It won't take very much. She's a uh, yeah. She's she's Italian blood, and if I can just oh, say, you know, I it's see. light. It's very similar to Italy. Exactly. Has more hills, and uh, excellent coffee. Lots of small shops. She'll 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 she'll, she'll, right she'll, she'll feel at home. Yeah, cool, cool. You've had a long career as an entrepreneur, as mm -hmm. a writer, and and uh, do you? You know, when you look at um, other entrepreneurs and as an investor, and you've invested in funds and also in companies, what do you look for in an entrepreneur? Uh, yeah, well, let's see. This is a good question. I, I, I'm not sure my answers will be terribly satisfying, but I'll try it. Uh, so I look for putting aside track record. Let's assume that there is no track record because that's kind of cheating. I was like, yeah, if they've had three successful exits, right. obviously. That's a good sign. <laughs> it helps with your due diligence. It makes it a lot easier. But I would say first, I, I really look for people who are extremely self-aware. And part of that self-awareness, I think, is understanding their limitations. So for, say, hiring purposes, like do they understand their limitations? Do they have uh, good me mentors and do they know how to ask for help? well so are they specific in how they ask for help do they know who they would go to for specific things i want to know that they have and the plan will always change but i want to know that they have a very concrete plan for how they will spend money not just raise as much as possible uh, so are they thinking past this round are they thinking not just about valuation but how they're really going to use capital and human resources to build a highly successful business. Uh, those are things I look for. Uh, and the self-awareness also comes down to, or I think correlates to situational awareness. So, you know, if I ask them three years from now, your company has failed. What are the most likely reasons it's failed? Like, they should have very clear answers to that. They should not have to think about it from my perspective. And, and that will help them navigate preemptively around a lot of potential pitfalls and 
problems. Those problems could be competitive, they could be regulatory, they could be macroeconomic, right? They could be any number of things. So, uh, and if they say execute, <laughs> execution, <laughs> again, it comes back to asking for help. It's like, how right. specific can you be? Like, right, right, right. Or if I ask them, okay, two years from now, you and your co-founder split. Why do you split? And how do you split? Yeah. What does that look like? Because it happens all the time. So, all right. It does. It does. No, that's really insightful because that's going one step beyond the usual sort of execution type of uh, yeah. questions and answers, right? And then, I mean, first and foremost, I'm looking at the product or service. It has to be something. I'm a very simple investor generally, personally. Right? When I invest in funds, I'm investing in funds because I assume they can do a better job at many other things that I'm unqualified <laughs> to tackle. So... That would be true here, right, in Portugal. I don't understand the, the, the Portuguese ecosystem. I don't know who the main players are. I don't know the other investors. This is just an, 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 a new territory, a new arena for me. But if I'm investing my own money into startups, then I'm looking at, generally speaking, a product or service that solves a problem I have or understand very clearly. Right, right. And that allows me also to be easily helpful because I can personalize the company or the product and relate it to my own experience. So if it ends up being something that I'm comfortable promoting, it's very easy yeah. for me to promote just by describing the problem and then the solution. Right, right, right. It becomes obvious. You've lived, you know, in many countries and, and you're very experienced and you think, you know, sometimes people say, well, now you can find talent everywhere and there's, you can work from anywhere and there's markets everywhere. How important is it for, for, say, a Portuguese entrepreneur or an European entrepreneur to tackle the U.S.? Uh, I think it's, it would seem to be very case-specific. So I've never been involved in a situation like that. But I do know the temptation, I think, is often there for people to expand as quickly as possible or to go to the largest market. total addressable market. And so they say, well, look, you know, I'm making Q-tips you know, for the years. And it's like, if I just get 1% of China, China is this big and I get 1%. And, like, and so they can use this arithmetic to kind of romanticize something that may be impossible at their current stage of growth. So uh, so what you're uh, saying is it's important to go there, but maybe at the right time, right? Because at the right time and also with the right product, right? So for instance, if you have, if you're developing something, I'm just making this up, but in Portugal or in Europe, that has already been yeah, piloted, developed. developed in the U.S., then it may not make any sense for you to try to tackle the sort of pre-existing incumbent in the U.S. But on the other hand, if you're developing, and we see this all over the world now, and not to use the buzzword, but you know, in Web3, uh, you see these innovative companies everywhere. I mean, you see, say, Axie Infinity out of Vietnam or any number of other places. So if you have underlying, let's just use a Web3 example, like a layer one technology that is fundamentally improving upon any number of aspects or providing a very kind of custom solution to a particular demographic, uh, then you could expand, but I think the, or to tackle the market, but with a lot of these technologies, if it is fundamentally better for a certain subset of people, uh, you may not have to ever set foot in the United States to establish Right. Kind of a dominant position. Right. So it's a good question. I haven't, uh, I've dealt with it in 
from the U.S. perspective, right. people wanting to go to say Europe very often, yeah. like with Uber and like how how quickly do you go to London? How quickly right. do you go to Paris? And planning that rollout is really important, especially with something that physically right. intensive. Right. I ask this because, as you well, you might not be aware, but the almost all the Portuguese unicorns, and we've backed uh, almost all of them, um, have done that. They yeah. essentially, one of the advantages of Portugal is that there is no market. And yeah. so um, that forces the companies to go global from day one, uh, yeah. and that forces them to sort of possibly look immediately at the US, and then it's yeah. sink or swim. Yeah, and if sure. you are different, then you are, you know, the one yeah. percent uh, Q-tip uh, kind of thing, right? But yeah. you're totally right that you know, if you don't, if you're not ready, if you don't have the capital, if you don't have the product, yeah. it is pretty difficult. It doesn't mean that you have to be there physically, but but yeah. to actually address the market one yeah. way or the other. It's a great point. You have to, given the the sort of total just market in Portugal, you have to think about international from day one. I mean, contrary to from, the U.S., right? Right. Where you can, yeah, the U.S. Now you can you stay. <laughs> focus, focus on your city or your state in some cases, and you're done, at least for a while. Uh, as was the case with Uber, right? San Francisco, mm-hmm. and that's where it started. Three cars, and uh, you just can't do that in all locations. Yeah. So, some of the companies that you've invested, were there some? I mean, we've talked already about you know what entrepreneurs need to sort of do to be successful, but can you remember? You know some specific characteristics of you don't have to name people that were kind of common in all these in the few entrepreneurs that you might have invested that are really you know super major success stories do they have something that you can say in common maybe yeah i mean the first thing that comes to mind is that uh, uh, they don't want to be entrepreneurs because they can't not be entrepreneurs like there's a there's a compulsive element to it right like they are just yeah like they 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 would not make generally would not make great employees like they're just the the idea that they you would have to keep them from being an entrepreneur you're not trying to convince them to be an entrepreneur Uh, so there's there's certain uh, uh, and i and i use this term understanding that it has some negative connotations but like there is a certain like obsessive compulsive aspect to it and uh, I think that it depends on the business, but especially like if you're going to play the venture backed scale, scale, scale game. I mean, it, it it's is a very a, specific it's a professional sport. It's very tiring. Yeah. And so for people to maintain the endurance to go hard for as long as they generally need to. Right. Because if I look at the, the biggest successes of any of the companies I've invested in, right, whether it's like Facebook, Twitter, Uber, Shopify, whatever, from my investment or advising to first liquidity, it's like seven to 10 years. That's a long tour of duty to be pounding the pavement. And uh, it takes a, a tremendous amount of stamina. So that's another thing I would say, which is related, but not exactly the same. And I don't have this, so I'm jealous of these people, but there are certain founders who just seem to have different batteries just different batteries they can they can just go 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 not not all successful entrepreneurs fit that mold but right. the but, but the, the majority do right a lot of them do a lot of them but do. does that sometimes lead maybe vcs and investors to always pick the same sort of people i mean there's a lot of talk about diversity and stuff and 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 sometimes even cultural differences play a part right because yeah. not all 
cultures express themselves in the same way. They, sure. They yeah. don't all are not maybe so outgoing and and yeah. extroverts. Does you think that there is a factor in that uh, or? Oh, I think all of those pieces of the puzzle are part of the puzzle. Uh, but I'm astonished, just to give an example, how many founders, and this is not, I mean, maybe there's a, I mean, I'm sure there is a genetic component. There is, right. I, I've actually looked at this very closely uh, because it's just so mind boggling to me. But the, the number of founders I meet and I ask them, like, what is your average night's sleep for the last month? And they're like, four and a half hours, five hours. That's not normal. That's no. not normal. <laughs> so, and I'm not saying you have to have that. I also I, I want to be very clear. That. I know people. Well, there are people who just don't need don't that need much sleep. Yeah, yeah. They're called super sleepers, and there's a genetic basis for it. But uh, so I think that very often, if we're talking about like the gold medalists, they're kind of mutants. Uh, I hate to say that because like you can't you got to choose your parents very carefully if you want to be born a mutant, but uh, but then there are different examples, right? You can have, and this is certainly true, you can have founders who, or let's just call them first founders, because I know you can bring in people later and call them founders and everything, but first founders who are very quiet, super engineering focused, actually do need sleep, but then they hire this like maniac machine co-founder or CEO or CEO to come in. It just keeps going. And they just have infinite batteries. Yeah. Uh, I think for the more I interact with startups and uh, you know, over whatever it is, 15 years now, the more I see that it's a yes, time management is important. Yes, priority management is important. But like at the, at the very bottom of that, uh, you have this foundation of energy management. And you just, you have to, if you're not one of those mutants, you really have to figure out energy management. Uh, so I'd say those are a few things that come to mind. And to come back to something I said earlier, they're just very specific, very surgical, right? Like I, the interview hasn't come out yet, but I was chatting with uh, Mark Zuckerberg last week and he has a 15 year plan for the metaverse. And that's rare, right? Obviously, because these, these kind of CEO, these founder CEOs, are, I don't want to say a dying breed, but a lot leave their companies later. He's one of the last of a generation, one could argue. And he's still young. Right? And he's still young. And so you have people, Bezos would be another example, although of course he's, he's taking more of the back seat, where the stock market is judging things every three months and right. like thinking, being judged by analysts, like right. give me a break. And then he has a 15 year plan. I mean, that's uh, the, the amount of specificity and the amount of forethought and the, the amount of like macro awareness and education that you have to have related to different converging trends of technology to have anything like a three to five year plan is pretty hard. So to think it out that far, you really, you know, I think Toby at Shopify is another person who's very good at that. Uh, not accidental that both of them have engineering backgrounds. You know, I'm not an engineer, so I have this like lifelong insecurity about that. <laughs> but uh, they are very good at long-term planning with the expectation that the plan will change. But uh, if, if you look at any of the largest companies, or I should say smallest companies I've been involved with that have ended up getting really, really big, 
the founders always have a tentative but very specific long-term plan, almost like roadmap, almost from the outset. Uh, I don't know if that's required, but it does seem common. Makes a difference. Yeah. Before we go, because I know you have to go and yeah. I have to go as well. Um, how do you feel about the whole thing? You know, what's happening around the world now and what do you think will be the consequences? I know this is a bit of a hard question, yeah. but I mean, particularly for investing, tech, you know, capital raising, startups, how do you think this is going to pan out? You know, if, oh, if, if the war keeps on going. Or... Oof. So Ukraine, Russia, we're talking about? Yeah. Uh, is this the thing that will actually bring the market down or, or you think this is going to keep on going because it's just a, a secular trend that technology is, you know, dominating and, and, and yeah. changing the world? That's a tough, uh, definitely a tough one. So I'm no geopolitical expert. Uh, I, I think that to state the obvious, I mean, it depends a lot on on where this escalates. I think people are underestimating the secondary and tertiary effects of elevated fuel costs. I mean, that hits everything. everything. Like, you like your bananas? Okay, well, unless they grow where you live, guess what? Your bananas are going to get more expensive. Right? Milk? Okay. Unless you get it from your backyard, it's going to get more expensive. Like, everything travels on container, in containers, and on container ships, and on container trucks, just about. Right. So uh, as far as how that'll affect the market, you know, I <laughs> would like to pretend that I have some understanding, but it, it seems to hinge a lot on how much kind of quantitative easing and governmental support there is meant to be. Now, I have heard pretty compelling arguments that like the inflation and so on, that at least in the U.S. we're seeing tremendous inflation is... It has not been caused by anything recent. It's sort of back taxes right. for, for having nice printed so much money, money at the right. rate that we have of course. Uh, from the central bank. Now, and for a long time. Right? For a long time. For a long time. So people don't want to hear that because they don't want their bananas to be $5 a piece. But you know, at the end of the day, you, you, I think you, uh, you have to pay certain debts and back taxes so us has been living and i'm sure a lot of countries pretty high on the hog for a while now uh, but i will say from the startup perspective and funding since you mentioned funding i do think and it, it's overblown and there's a lot of hype and there's a lot of scams and there's a lot of nonsense but turning users into owners or at least aligning incentives with tokens Uh, and derivatives of tokens providing transferable ownership, uh, I think will, it already is, but it's going to be much more widespread as I think an alternative funding route for a lot of companies. And uh, that's very exciting. I think it's going to be very messy for lawyers and regulators also. <laughs> I know that for sure, but it is exciting to see certain startups now taking maybe one or two rounds of money. So you guys are well situated in the sense that you're like pre-seed and you can certainly do later stage, but providing just enough fuel to kind of reach escape velocity and then the companies can look for alternative sources of funding that are non-dilutive or maybe less dilutive. That is really interesting. And uh, I mean, 
I never could have talked about 15 year roadmap. Like I never could have predicted this no, like no. five years ago. No. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, don't, you know, Nobody don't, knows. yeah. So don't, don't hire me to write your 15 year roadmap, but, <laughs> uh, but, but I do think it's exciting and the costs of starting up startups continue to go down. Not, not for all sectors, but for many. And, uh, I don't think, I don't expect, you know, I was, if we, if we look at just say during COVID, right, this is like a, a, an existential threat in the form of a global pandemic. <laughs> I thought for sure there would be this big contraction in startups and valuations would go down. No, yeah, nope. totally wrong. Yeah. Went the complete opposite direction. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think that a lot of, what happens to funding, let's just say through LPs and funds and so on, will depend on what alter, alternative high return risk assets are yeah. available to money that's floating around the planet looking for a spot to land, yeah. right? And during COVID, like all these things got taken off the table, people Suddenly. weren't sure where to put it and they're like, well, let's just push it all into startups. Yes, um, and crypto, of course. Yeah, and crypto, yeah. So that that could continue to happen. I, I've been shocked by, I mean, I've, I've looked at a number of Series A rounds <laughs> that I've not been involved with. And I'm not saying they're bad investments, but they're like 2.5, 3, 3.5 3 billion dollar yeah. series. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad this you know, is not the reality. And here. it's just like, wow. Yes. Okay. All right. We'll this see where it goes. Either very well or very badly. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be super <laughs> binary. Uh, but uh, so, I th so I think, you know, in that respect, it kind of feels reminiscent right now of 98, 99. Yeah. But we've been saying that for quite some time. We have. I, for, <laughs> me, for me, yeah, for sure. I mean, I feel that way right now, specifically with Crypto Web 3, yeah. just because there's so much garbage. However, I do think there's probably like a Google or an Amazon floating yeah. around in there. Yeah. Question is, how do you? Spot yeah, am I good enough them? to find them? Eh, it's difficult. Probably not. It's uh, difficult. Yeah, very, very hard. But we that, try. That, that's why the high risk, high return. <laughs> <laughs> it's like this is you're not buying municipal bonds here. Like this no, is you're right. playing startups. Yeah, that's right. all right. You're gonna you're gonna strike out a lot. Bear the risk. Yeah, bear the risk. Team, it was great to see you here. Yeah, likewise. Thanks so much. See you another day. Absolutely. I hope you enjoyed the red chair. I'll see you another day. Team Ferris.